Hello and welcome to Solutions. This is the second episode of our fourth series of podcasts for solution-focused hypnotherapists and I'm Cathy Eland. And I'm Trevor Eddles and we're both experienced solution-focused hypnotherapists. So this time we're taking a look at sleep, insomnia and nightmares and giving some suggestions of what will help clients who aren't sleeping well. How much sleep should people have then, Cathy? Good question. So adults are recommended to have over seven hours. Teenagers should be getting eight to 10 hours and younger people should be getting more. So newborns sleep for 14 to 17 hours a day. And you might ask yourself, are you getting enough sleep? Mm. So why do people sleep? What are the benefits? Well, it improves your attention and concentration. You learn and consolidate memories. Yeah, and it's good for your weight because less sleep uses more energy, which leads to eating high-sugar, high-fat foods. It keeps your heart healthy. It's good for the immune system. It reduces stress. It's good for relationships because tired people tend to be grumpy. (laughs) Uh, Do you know what the record is for someone to go without sleep? Strange, you should ask. I do. 17-year-old Randy Gardner set the record in 1964 for the longest period a human being has intentionally gone without sleep and without using stimulants of any kind. The record is 264 hours or 11 days. Wow. Because of the effect staying awake had on him, like strange daydreams, no one can now set a record for staying awake. Okay, so let's look at some terms that are used around sleep. Sleep debt or sleep deficit is the name given to the cumulative effect of not getting enough sleep. Sleep pressure is simply the pressure for us to go to sleep. It becomes greater the longer we have been awake. Adding to that sleep pressure, your immune system can make you feel sleepy when it's fighting an infection. So lack of sleep can impair your immune system. Sleep opportunity is how many hours you need to spend in bed in order to get enough sleep. Now, it's calculated by adding together the number of hours of sleep you need, plus the number of hours you know you'll need to fall asleep, plus how long it takes you to wake up. Paradoxical insomnia, previously called sleep state misperception, is where people say they have slept poorly or not slept at all, but actually they have slept. Using electrodes or other sleep monitoring devices, it can be shown that there's a huge mismatch. The person has slept much better than they report. People with paradoxical insomnia have the illusion of poor sleep when it's not actually poor. That is interesting. And the grogginess people sometimes feel when they first wake is called sleep inertia. Sleep inversion or sleep-wake inversion is where a person is active at night and sleeps during the day. When sleep-wake inversion is involuntary, it can be a sign of a serious disorder. Mm. So what does ordinary sleep look like for those people who get it? Well, Sleep is divided into four stages. It used to be five, but stages three and four were combined. The first three stages are non-REM or NREM sleep, and the fourth stage is REM sleep or rapid eye movement sleep. So these stages are 
Okay, stage one, which can be considered a transition period between wakefulness and sleep and lasts around five to 10 minutes. The brain produces high amplitude theta waves, which are very slow brain waves. Stage two, where people become less aware of their surroundings, their body temperature drops and their breathing and heart rate become more regular. It lasts around 20 minutes. The brain begins to produce bursts of rapid rhythmic brainwave activity called sleep spindles. People spend around 50% of their total sleep in this stage. Okay, so stage three is called delta sleep, where a person's muscles relax and blood pressure and breathing rate drop. Slow brainwave lengths, which is called delta waves, are generated and people become less responsive and noises and activity in the environment may not get a response. And stage four is that REM, you know, rapid eye movement sleep, where the brain becomes more active and the body becomes relaxed and voluntary muscles become immobilized. Dreams occur and the eyes move rapidly. There is also an increase in respiration rates and increased brain activity. People spend around 20% of their total sleep in this stage. So sleep begins in stage one and progresses into stage two and three. After stage three, stage two sleep is repeated before entering REM sleep, which is stage four. Once REM sleep is over, the body usually returns to stage two sleep. Sleep cycles through these stages approximately four or five times throughout the night. Typically, sleep cycles last around 90 minutes. The first cycle of REM sleep might last only a short amount of time, but each cycle becomes longer through the night. REM sleep can last up to an hour as sleep progresses. So what's going on inside your brain when you go to bed? Well, in good sleepers, the amygdala, the hippocampus and the alertness regions of the brainstem become less active as they begin to fall asleep. With insomniacs, these regions stay active. Their thalamus also stays active. People with insomnia also have lower quality of sleep with shallower and less powerful brain waves during NREM or non-REM sleep and more fragmented REM sleep. Non-REM sleep can also be referred to as SWS or slow wave sleep. Okay, so the hypothalamus contains the suprachiasmatic nucleus or the SCN, which receives information about light exposure from the eyes and controls a person's circadian rhythms. It produces the neurotransmitter gamma-aminobutric acid, which is GABA, which reduces the activity of arousal centers in the hypothalamus. The brainstem communicates with the hypothalamus to control the transitions between wake and sleep. The brainstem also produces GABA, which reduces the activity of arousal centres in the brainstem. And during most stages of sleep, the thalamus becomes quiet, ignoring messages from the outside world. But during REM sleep, the thalamus is active, sending the cortex images, sounds and other sensations. The pineal gland receives signals from the SCN and increases production of the hormone melatonin, which helps put a person to sleep once the lights go out. When the eyes receive light from the sun, 
the pineal gland's production of melatonin is inhibited. When the eyes do not receive light, melatonin is produced in the pineal gland and a person feels tired. Right. The basal forebrain promotes sleep and wakefulness, while part of the midbrain acts as an arousal system. Adenosine is produced by astrocytes, which are a type of glial cell, in the basal forebrain. Adenosine is a neurotransmitter or a neuromodulator affecting the sleep process, particularly the initiation of sleep. In the brain, it is an inhibitory neurotransmitter and inhibits many processes associated with wakefulness. While awake, levels of adenosine in the brain continue to rise, increasing a person's level of sleepiness. Adenosine levels decrease during sleep. And the neurons, the ones located predominantly in the hypothalamus, produce orexin, which is a neuropeptide that seems to promote wakefulness. It also regulates arousal, feeding, energy expenditure and moderates visceral function. The role of the orexin system is to integrate metabolic, circadian and sleep depth influences to determine whether an animal should be asleep or awake and active. Orexin neurons strongly excite various brain nuclei with important roles in wakefulness, including the dopamine, noradrenaline, histamine and acetylcholine systems, and appear to play an important role in stabilising wakefulness and sleep. So moving on to sleep disorders, they include, of course, insomnia or difficulty getting to sleep and waking up before it is time to get up. Sleep apnea, which causes people to stop breathing abruptly while they are asleep. Carbon dioxide builds up in the blood and the sleeper wakes suddenly to gasp for breath. Uh, narcolepsy, which is a neurological sleep disorder in which sufferers experience periods of intense sleepiness during the daytime. And finally, there's sleepwalking or somnambulism and night terrors. So people with insomnia may have difficulty falling asleep they may wake up early and can't get back to sleep. They may wake up several times during the night or they may lie awake at night. The trouble with not getting enough sleep during the night is that people feel sleepy the following day, although they find it hard to nap during the day, even though they're tired. And they feel low on energy and they can be irritable and may feel depressed. Episodes of insomnia may be short term or may go on much longer. Sometimes insomnia is linked to other conditions such as stress, chronic pain, heart failure, hyperthyroidism, heartburn, restless leg syndrome, menopause, certain medications and drugs such as caffeine, nicotine and alcohol. Insomnia can also be associated with working night shifts and sleep apnea. Like we said, it's where a person has pauses in their breathing or periods of shallow breathing during sleep. Poor sleep quality is defined as the individual not reaching stage three, which has restorative properties. Now, it's been estimated that between 10 and 30 percent of adults have insomnia at any given point in time. And up to half the population has insomnia in a given year. About six percent of people have insomnia that is not due to another problem and lasts for more than a month. Women are more affected than men. Mm. People in the following groups have a higher chance of experience insomnia. They are older than 60. 
have a history of mental health disorders, including depression. Or experiencing emotional stress or work stress. Work late or uh, night shifts. Have travelled through different time zones. Have chronic diseases such as diabetes, kidney disease, lung disease, Alzheimer's or heart disease. Have alcohol or drug use disorders. Have gastrointestinal reflux disease. A heavy smokers. And you know you've got insomnia if you have difficulty falling asleep, including difficulty finding a comfortable sleeping position. Wake during the night and are unable to return to sleep. We wake up early. Are not able to focus on daily tasks and have difficulty in remembering. That's me. <laughs> Experience daytime sleepiness, depression or anxiety. Feel tired or have low energy levels during the day. Have trouble concentrating. Are irritable or act aggressively or impulsively. Insomnia can be classified as transient, acute or chronic. So transient insomnia lasts for less than a week and it can be caused by another disorder, by changes in the sleep environment or by the timing of sleep, by severe depression or by stress. Its consequences, i.e. sleepiness and impaired psychomotor performance, are similar to those of sleep deprivation. Acute insomnia is the inability to consistently sleep well for a period of less than a month. Insomnia is present when there is difficulty initiating or maintaining sleep, or when the sleep that is obtained is non-refreshing or of poor quality. These problems occur despite adequate opportunity and circumstances for sleep, and they result in problems with daytime function. Acute insomnia is also called short-term insomnia or stress-related insomnia. Okay, so chronic insomnia lasts for longer than a month, may or may not be caused by another disorder. People with high levels of stress hormones or shifts in the levels of cytokines are more likely than others to have chronic insomnia. Its effects can vary according to its causes, but they may include muscular weariness, hallucinations and or mental fatigue and chronic insomnia can cause double vision. It's worth noting that sleep onset insomnia, which is a difficulty falling asleep at the beginning of the night, is often a symptom of anxiety disorders. Mm -hmm. And delayed sleep phase disorder, DSPD, is often misdiagnosed as insomnia. DSPD is where sleep onset is delayed until much later than normal, while waking up is also much later in the day. So this is what we need to know. What are the causes of insomnia? Well, there are two models of why people get insomnia. In the cognitive model, people are thought to be unable to get to sleep through rumination or hyperarousal. The second model, the physiological model, is based on what's found in people with insomnia. Firstly, there's increased urinary cortisol and catecholamines, e.g. adrenaline and noradrenaline, which have been found suggesting increased activity of the HPA axis and arousal. Secondly, people with insomnia have been found to have increased global cerebral glucose utilization during wakefulness and NREM sleep. Thirdly, increased full body metabolism and heart rate have been found in people with insomnia.
Now, these findings suggest that there's a dysregulation of the arousal system, the cognitive system, and the HPA axis that contribute to insomnia. And what's not known is which is the cause and which is, in fact, the effect. Mm, interesting. Um, other common causes of insomnia include noise, a room that's too hot or cold, an uncomfortable bed, alcohol, caffeine or nicotine, recreational drugs like cocaine or ecstasy, jet lag or shift work. Makes sense. Now, a hypnotherapist should be able to help directly with stress, particularly as clients often add to their stress levels by worrying about not sleeping. Yeah, here are some suggestions for clients to avoid insomnia. So, for example, don't eat big meals close to bedtime. Don't drink lots of coffee. Don't drink alcohol. Don't smoke. No strenuous exercise immediately before bed. Exercise during the day. Maintain a sleep routine, fixed bedtimes, etc. Keep the bedroom dark, quiet and relaxing. No work or TV in bed. Mm. Uh, try a warm bath before bedtime. Get plenty of daylight. Have a massage. Listen to music. Drink warm milk. Drink herbal tea. Eat a bedtime snack. Get plenty of daylight. Always wake up at the same time, even at the weekends. Don't go to bed until you're sleepy. Avoid bright light in the evening. Don't take daytime naps. Now, if a client still can't sleep, they can leave the bed and begin an activity in another location. Now, this activity must not be pleasurable. Otherwise, the brain will think staying awake is being rewarded. Yes. Now, Milton Erickson had a client with insomnia. He famously used an avoidance-avoidance bind to resolve the client's symptoms. So the client was a meticulous elderly man who prided himself on doing all his own housework except waxing the floors, which he hated. Erickson told the man that there was an obvious solution to his insomnia problem, but he might not like it, which is a typical Erickson comment. The man insisted that he would do whatever was necessary in order to sleep. Erickson, as usual, was reluctant to tell the man what he needed to do, and the man insisted that he do whatever was necessary, giving various examples of how persistent he was in dealing with difficult problems. Erickson finally told him that if he wasn't asleep within 15 minutes of going to bed, he had to get up and wax the floors until he felt he could sleep. After that, if he was still not asleep within 15 minutes... He had to get up again and continue this procedure until he was asleep. The end result was that the man had well-waxed floors and slept very well. Oh, goodness. And then there's paradoxical intent. Instead of attempting to fall asleep at night, the client must make every effort to stay awake. This removes any performance anxiety that comes from the need to fall asleep. Yeah, and clients may want to try medications from their doctor, but remember, these are not recommended for more than four or five weeks, and chronic insomnia can last longer than that. Okay. One technique that is sometimes used is to restrict the amount of time that people with insomnia spend in bed, maybe to just six hours. Keeping people awake for longer builds up the sleep pressure, and people fall asleep faster and sleep better. It also increases their expectation that they will sleep better in future. 
Looking quickly at nightmares, children and adolescents experience more nightmares than adults, although half of adults experience nightmares sometimes, and nightmares are more usual among women than men. Nightmares can increase with traumatic or adverse events, irregular sleep, sleep deprivation and jet lag. Now, um, a study in 2009 by J. Roberts et al. analysed the dreams and stress levels of 624 high school students and found that those who reported being distressed by their dreams were even more likely to report suffering from general anxiety. The study didn't find whether the nightmares made the children more stressed or whether it prevented them from being more stressed. Now, however, a smaller study in 2009 by Louis-Philippe Marquess et al. found that when people who frequently recalled their nightmares were shown disturbing images, the areas of the brain associated with negative emotions in dreams were activated, demonstrating that nightmares could actually enhance waking life distress. Mm. According to Markov et al. 2012, 80% of dreams occur during REM, and it's estimated that 95% of dreams are forgotten by the time a person gets out of bed. REM atonia is where there is almost complete paralysis of the muscles of the body. Obviously, the heart and lung continue to work, but not voluntary muscles. Interestingly, dreaming has also been shown to promote creative thinking. That was Llewellyn et al. in 2017. Now, reoccurring nightmares may not be identical each time a person has them, but they will have similar themes. A person who is stressed or anxious may very well have more frequent nightmares. And being worried about a particular event or situation, including only dreamed of situations, can result in a person needing to dream about it again and again until the situation is resolved or it loses its emotional content. Good news, hypnotherapy can help. A 2007 study by Haun et al. published in the Journal of Clinical Sleep Medicine found that one or two sessions of hypnotherapy might be an efficient first-line therapy for patients with certain types of parasomnias. Parasomnias are undesirable events or experiences that occur either during sleep or within close proximity to sleep and include nightmares, sleepwalking, etc., other studies have found hypnotherapy to be helpful for people experiencing nightmares, e.g. Gerard Kennedy in 2002. The therapist can help a person deal with stress or anxiety in their life, what we call stress bucket emptying. Hypnotherapy can also help a person to get a good night's sleep because sleep also helps to reduce stress levels. And lack of sleep may result from a person not wanting to sleep because they have nightmares. Hypnotherapy can also help a person with their negative thought patterns. Maybe your accepted ideas of why a person, your boss, your staff, your children, your partner, etc., is behaving in a negative way towards you might be wrong. There might well be an alternative explanation for their behaviour that doesn't involve you. Now, a hypnotherapist might advise a person not to eat immediately before going to bed as a way of stopping nightmares. The therapist might suggest that people write down any concerns or worries before going into bed so they don't keep thinking about them while they're trying to go to sleep. 
The therapist might discuss the recurring nightmare with the client and help them to rewrite the ending to a more positive one. Perhaps someone turns on the light and the bad guys run away. Perhaps the aliens are called away to invade a different planet. Perhaps the water stops filling up and escapes through a hole, leaving you warm and dry. You get the idea. The therapist will definitely show the client how to breathe in a way that will help a person to relax, e.g. 7-11 breathing or square breathing. And the hypnotherapist will share recordings that will help the client to relax as they go to sleep or if they wake during the night. These techniques can be successfully used with children and adults. Wow, that was a gallop through sleep, insomnia and nightmares. It certainly was. Uh, and we didn't even mention snoring. Anyway, um, I hope that you find that useful. Next time, we'll be looking at the history of hypnotherapy and hypnotherapists. Mm, interesting. Until then, it's goodbye from me, Cathy Eland. And it's goodbye from me, Trevor Eddles. And we'll see you next time. Bye. Bye. <laughs>